Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down beside a well. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word, and we are thankful for it. And Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the, uh, both the true history of your people. This is, in fact, a history of our people. We are included in this seed of Abraham by faith. And Lord, we are thankful for what we see of Christ in this. We know, Lord, that Moses indeed was a type and picture of Christ. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might learn of him, that we might receive all the usefulness to us that this, your word, has for us, and that you bless it to our souls eternally. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we return to Exodus chapter 2 and to these verses 11 to 15. And now we see that this little baby in the bulrush ark has grown up, and he's now about 40 years old. And it is at this point that Moses makes a very fateful decision to go out and to visit his people, the Hebrews. And thus is set in motion the chain of events that would lead up to the the whole exodus from Egypt and all that would thereafter come from it. Now, this 
much, uh, well, I must say, there isn't all that much in, in Old Testament history that is utterly straightforward. We get things sometimes, we get a narration of events without commentary, um, so we, uh, we understand that. And were this section the only thing that we had to go on, we'd probably have some difficulty deciding how exactly to take it. But thankfully, the Lord has given us not just one, but actually two inspired commentaries on this section in the New Testament, right? We're very thankful. We have uh, one from the perspective of Moses, who was acting in faith, and that's in Hebrews chapter 11, and the other from the perspective of the people's rejection of Moses, which is in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, as I read earlier. So we're thankful that we have these inspired and inerrant guides for us, that we don't have to guess the spiritual implications of what is happening in this, in this text. And as we see in the end, it's all about, it's about choice, whether we're going to receive or whether we're going to reject. It's about faith, whether we're going to believe or whether we're going to continue in unbelief. That's the larger picture. And it certainly has to do with our own personal decision to stand up and be counted, to, to follow God and to, to be identified with God's people rather than to make ourselves just a mere anonymous part of the world. Now, Moses made the right choice to turn his back on the world, to stand for God, to identify with his people. And we have, as throughout this book, much to learn from him. But not only in his personal example, but much more so as he points us to Christ. Because, again, if you haven't heard me say it, you will have heard me say it, and I will say it, that Moses is a type of Christ, and all of the Exodus is a type of the redemption that is to be found in Christ. And therefore, not only are we learning from Moses personally, we are learning from Christ because Moses is pointing us to Christ. Okay? So the title of this sermon is Moses Stands for God's People. And tonight we have four uh, points. First, he looked on their burdens. He interceded to save. Third, he was rejected. And fourth, he was opposed. Looked on their burdens, interceded to save, was rejected, and was opposed. Well, first, he looked on their burdens. Verse 11, so it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked on their burdens. Now, that was a very, very fateful decision. And I, I want us to understand that it wasn't that he, Moses lived such a sheltered life that he suddenly went out and, and saw that his people were being oppressed. It's not the first time that knowledge of their situation ever came to his ear. He knew it. Uh, of course, he, was, he grew up for a time among the Hebrews, so he certainly would have known it. Um, and, of course, even in his situation uh, in the court, it was by no means something that would have been hidden, but a public, the, the most sort of public and pressing policy issue for the Egyptians of the day, what to do with these Hebrews and all the oppressive measures that they were using against them. So he knew these things, but he could have easily have kept them at arm's length because there is a difference between having a mere head knowledge of something and a more experiential knowledge of coming and seeing it for yourself and even experiencing it. And that's the fateful decision that Moses made. He wanted to go look upon these burdens. Now, as I say, he could have easily have chosen to keep things at arm's length as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was in no danger himself. They weren't coming for him. 
He was in the lap of luxury and privilege. He had absolutely nothing to gain in in worldly terms and everything to lose by this move he was about to make. And to add to it, say this, even if he was now fully convinced that he wanted to help his, his brethren, the Hebrews, it's not immediately apparent that this was the only way to do it, right? Because other men might have reasoned that the best way to help was to use his position from within the establishment. Matthew Henry points out, the temptation was indeed very strong. But he had a fair opportunity, as we say, to make his fortune and to have been serviceable to Israel too with his interest at court. Again, an archaic way of saying the same thing. He could have just kept quiet, stayed within uh, the, the situation there, and as he continued, his star continued to rise at court, he could have used his influence to help his people in some way. But he didn't do it. Instead, he chose to go out to them conscious, fully conscious of where this was going to take him. Because, again, we know from the book of Hebrews, we're not just guessing here, we know from the book of Hebrews that this was, in fact, an act of faith. Hebrews 11.24, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. We know that he did it self-consciously. We know that he acted in faith to reject his situation in the world and rather to be identified with God's people. And we see more of the fullness of what is going on in this spiritual and faithful decision. Now, in this, he was doing, again, he's a type, isn't he? He's a type. In doing this, he's doing as the Lord himself would do in Exodus 3, 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. You see, that's the beginning of this redemption. This is now another 40 years into the future when Moses is 80 and the the Lord appears to him in the burning bush. And one of the first things that comes out of his mouth as preface to this is, I have seen the oppression of my people. Right? Now, it goes on to say, so I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He sees the oppression, and then he delivers them out of the hands of the oppressors. Again, it's not the first time that God knew this, right? God foretold that this was going to happen back in the days of Abraham. He says that this was going to happen to them. He knows it. He knows all things. He's omniscient. But rather, it is that he is now self-consciously directing his attention to his people with the inevitable result, therefore, that he's going to bring about their redemption as he sees how terrible their affliction is. So he looked on their burdens. Secondly, he interceded to save. And so he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, in verse 12, so he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, we might hesitate at this action, wondering whether this was, in fact, a good thing or a bad thing. And let me just say, we know this, that each and every human act that has ever happened, including all the ones that are recorded in Scripture, the, the actions of Christ, of course, being exempted, But of every other human action, there's always going to be some mixture of sin. Of course there is going to be. We're sinners. And so sinful motivations 
uh, tinge even our best works. We know that's true. So we can say that. And we should be quite clear that this is not being held up for our direct emulation, okay? Or that we're not being said this is exactly the way that you should do. Because Moses was in a very unique situation from all kinds of different perspectives. His situation is not our situation. And the New Testament makes it clear that in our situation as the Christian church, the people of God, violence is certainly not the way that the Christian church is advanced. All that being said... Notice how the inspired commentary we have in Acts chapter 7 describes it all. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. That's very crucial and important information. It tells us all sorts of things that we would not otherwise have known, not even guessed at. It means he wasn't just acting off his own bat impulsively and rashly. It means rather that he understood himself to be called of God to be the redeemer of these people, which was true. We, we saw hints of his, the aspect of his, uh, that right from the beginning, his parents knew that there was something special about him. And no doubt in time, the Lord had ways of communicating that identity to him in one way or another. And once again, we see that this is an act of faith, a courageous faith on the part of Moses, recognizing the consequences, hearing the call of God in this, and acting accordingly. Now, in a sense, he was typifying redemption. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like the best picture of it. But again, think about it. Here is this helpless Hebrew being beaten without mercy by some Egyptian taskmaster. And he was, in fact, saved. Okay? That Hebrew, on that day, who was oppressed, was, in fact, saved by the hand of the Redeemer, Moses. And yes, let me say again, there is no salvation without judgment. Right? The work of Christ at his first coming when he came to die on the cross as a spotless lamb of God, it was to certainly to save his people. But the work of God continues. There's another part of it when Christ returns. He will come to judge the unrepentant sinners who are oppressing his people. And so there is no redemption, no salvation apart from judgment. And that's what we saw Moses doing. He interceded to save well, we see that he looked on their burdens and almost inevitably then as a, as a good and godly man and a picture of the, the Redeemer, he then sought, he interceded to save. And thirdly, he was rejected. In verse 13, when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men, you almost get the idea then. He's, he's going about and, and trying to help his people. And if there's problems like this, he's, he's there to help. Behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Now, this is the really tragic part, isn't it? This is the tragic part. Moses can defend his people from their oppressors. But what about when they oppress and they bite and devour one another? You know, it's the same thing with, with Paul. You read, he's not, I mean, look, he himself knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be thrown into prison and to pay the price, the penalty, for standing up for the Lord and for his people. But in some sense, that's not what really gets him down. What's really sad to Paul is when God's own people bite and devour one another. Because that is truly tragic. 
And so in some sense, Moses can save them from their physical oppressors, but he can't save them from themselves. Because, of course, the problem is sin. And for that problem, we would have to await the final and real redemption of Christ, who came to save people, yes, from external oppression, from, from slavery and all the rest of it, but, of course, from, from their own sin as well and many other things related to it. Well, anyhow, um, he seeks to talk sins into this man, but is not received. Instead, we have this angry response, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you, you killed the Egyptian? Now, that response has a lot to do, actually, with the way the men of Sodom responded to the very patient, overly patient words of Lot, if you remember. He is, is way too reasonable with him. And in response, they say this, this is Genesis 19.9, this one came to stay here, to sojourn here, and he keeps acting like a judge. Right? Wicked men will always question the legitimacy of any form of judgment or even questioning that comes their way. He asked, who made you a prince? Who made you a judge? Well, we have an answer, don't we, in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, verse 26, the next day he appeared as two of them, they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then uh, skipping down to verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Absolutely. Who made him a ruler? Who made him a prince? He was a prince. And he was made a judge over the people by God. And this foreshadows... The rejection that Moses would suffer from the people multiple times. You know, when he came back 40 years later, initially the people sort of accepted him. But when things didn't immediately go their way, they they began to reject him. He goes out into the desert. Even after this amazing, miraculous delivery from the people that the world has never seen the like of. As they go through the sea. And all of Pharaoh and his army are destroyed behind them. And soon enough, they find another reason to reject him. Even as he's on the, the mountain talking to God and receiving the word of God written by the finger of God, they're there rejecting Moses. And they reject him again and again. This is truly the tragedy, isn't it? That this one whom God sent to be the Redeemer was going to be rejected. But in all that, he's just a type because that's Stephen's point in his sermon. The reason why he builds it up as he does is precisely to point out that this has happened before. God has sent you a, a, a deliverer and you have rejected him. And now you have done the very, very same thing to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is mighty, a man, mighty word and deed. He was testified to you by all of his mighty deeds. And God sent him so that you might be saved, but you rejected him. You instead wanted a criminal, and you had him crucified. No doubt they were cut to the heart. No doubt they were convicted by these things. Unfortunately, unlike those who heard Peter's sermon, these who heard Stephen's sermon responded murderously by killing this this godly man. 
Well, John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The rejection of Moses that is only the beginning here, this rejection by one man who is really speaking, as it were, for the whole people, is only just the beginning of the, of the, the history of the rejection of God's Redeemer. And it carries on to this very day. He was rejected. Fourthly, finally and briefly, he was opposed by the enemy. In verse 14, so Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. So one day he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter, an acknowledged and exalted status among the elite. And now he is being hunted down by Pharaoh. He is a subject of his violent opposition. Now, we... Uh, again, understand that this is typical. We had previously a sermon, a whole sermon, of how Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. And, and that's how he reappears throughout this first part of, of the book of Exodus. And later on, actually, in the, the word of God, he is a picture of Satan. He's the enemy. He's trying to kill God's people. And he's opposing the redeemer of God's people, Moses. And so it's no surprise that his, his, his willingness to stand up and be, be counted, his willingness to, to not only be identified with God's people, but to intervene on their behalf, he will be opposed by the enemy. And this is typical. When Christ stood up to intercede on behalf of his people, he certainly aroused the opposition of Satan. You know, the, the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ was bad enough, and we saw how he sought to destroy the young Lord Jesus as he was born, just as he did, uh, just as Moses only narrowly escaped with his life. But more than that, the mere existence is one thing, but it was when he stood up to intervene on behalf of his people, when he began his public ministry, that is when the opposition of Satan really took off. That Satan will oppose those who stand for God's people. Satan and indeed all the earthly rulers of the nation in that day, in fact, did seek to kill the Lord Jesus and succeeded, or so they thought. Okay, so it's typical. It's pointing us to the larger picture. Anyways, back to Moses. Because of this opposition, he flees to the land of Midian. But as we're going to see, even this is in the providence of God, and it's going to actually set up the work of redemption. So that's, that's the, the, the sermon, and now here's the application. First of all, we should trust in Christ. Okay? The, the first and most important application is Christ himself, because Moses is wonderful, and we could talk all day about Moses. He's wonderful. But we're only, and we're only getting started, actually, with this great man of God. There's so much to admire in him. And what we've seen even here in his youth, as it were, 40 years old, is impressive, And Moses, I think, personally, is the sort of man you'd want on your side. Absolutely, you'd want to serve with this sort of man. You'd want to serve under this sort of man. But in all this, he was just a picture of Christ. When Moses himself later appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, what are they talking about? Wow, that time that I stood up against the Egyptian was was pretty great, wasn't it? No, that, that, that doesn't seem to come into the conversation. 
what he's discussing is the decease which Christ is about to accomplish in Jerusalem because that's what it's all about. That's what everything is pointing to. That's what all of the events of, of the redemption here and in the, the ceremonial law and the subsequent history of Israel and all the prophecies and the Psalms, all these things are pointing to that decease which he was about to accomplish. It's an interesting phraseology, isn't it? Not many people think about a decease which they're going to accomplish but that's exactly what it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. I frankly think it's the way for, that what happens to all of God's faithful people. I think you could say that about Stephen, couldn't you? I think he, he accomplished some decease. Well, anyhow, the point is that we're talking about Christ ultimately. You're here to see Christ. There's on this little plate that says, Sir, we would see Jesus, and that's what I'm showing you through Moses. Right? You trust in Christ. Moses is great. But he is pointing us to the wonderful person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is more than able and more than willing to save you who are oppressed. Trust in Christ through faith. Secondly, we should stand for the Lord. If there is ever an opportunity to make a stand for the Lord, then please take it. Not in a bellicose, warlike Uh, prickly sort of way, but in a courageous way, in a courageous and steadfast sort of way, be willing to take a stand for the Lord. Now, that certainly begins with a a decision, a willingness to identify with God's people. That's what Moses had to do. There he was. He, He knew. He had the sign of the covenant upon him because he was a covenant child. Now, he was there after in the world, as it were, among the the royal family, And he grew up in that sort of situation, and he was identified with the world. But then he decided that he was going to start identifying with God's people. And young people, I say, the sooner you make that decision, the better. Okay? And uh, certainly students, um, the day you show up is the day that you need to fly your colors, uh, pin them to the mast, Nail them to the mast and and make sure that people know where you stand because it's only going to make your life easier by doing that. Um, The more that you put that off, the more that you're squishy and undecided about these things, the worse it's going to be, uh, really. Because um, people sense weakness and they sense when you're undecided and they'll they'll make your your decision for you. Okay, so you don't know which side you're on. You don't know if you're a Christian or in the world. Well, we'll make that decision for you. Here you are. You're in the world with us. And if you're not, then now you, you're rejecting us in a more personal way rather than just coming at the beginning and saying, here's why I stand. I can do no other. Well, we should absolutely stand for the Lord in the sense of identifying with God's people. And we must also stand up for our brothers and sisters. We must stand up for them. We're, we're not the redeemer of God, but we should not let them suffer in silence. Second Timothy 4.16 At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. You know, we can be thankful for every last vocation, whether in the home or outside of the home, among us represented in this diverse congregation. So I don't hold any really up for a special honor. But I I, I must admit, I'm very, very thankful in particular uh, for the work of those who stand for Christians who are being attacked. Uh, in in Christian legal defense work. I'm very, very thankful for that. Uh, May it not be said that in my first defense, no one stood with us. 
That's shameful. That's inexcusable. And I'm sure the people that were friends with, with Paul or associates with Paul, I'm sure they came up with excuses. But we don't need to do that. We need to stand with those uh, who are the Lord's. Thirdly, I'd say we need to accept rejection. Fact of life. Accept it. If we're going to do any of this, we must come to terms with our fear of rejection. All right? Keep in mind that Moses left Egypt not, not in one sense, but in two senses. He was doubly rejected. Not only by, rejected by the Egyptians, but even by his own people, the Hebrews. That's the life of the faithful. That's the life of the courageous. That's the life of, of people of God. You have to be willing to be rejected. And that's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? Okay? We are Christians, and that means that we share in the things of Christ. We are like Christ. We have similarities with his situation. And his situation was he was despised and rejected by men. Brothers and sisters, if you claim the name of Christ, that is your life as well. You must be willing to face rejection. But fourthly, look to the reward. All right? It's just not all doom and gloom. That's what Hebrews says. It wasn't that look at the wonderful self-sacrificing martyr Moses. That isn't what it says at all. Look at it again. What does it say? He looked to the reward. He, in essence, was acting in self-interest. Yes, by being self-sacrificial. Yes, by laying his life down and rejecting the world and identifying with God's people. It was all very selfless in that sense, but ultimately he was doing what was good and right even for himself because he was looking to the reward. He had to do that simple calculation, living in the lap of luxury here or being in eternity with the Lord Jesus, which one is it? And he made the right decision. By faith, Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, he looked to the reward. None of this is going to work out very well if we don't look to the reward. Right? We're not going to trust in Christ if we don't understand the immense and eternal and infinite reward that is before us in doing that. We're not going to stand for the Lord when that's hard. We don't understand that, that the reward is at the other side of that. And certainly not being willing to receive, to, to suffer rejection. No one likes that. But I want you to understand that he who is, uh, those who, who are embarrassed of Christ, Christ says, I will be embarrassed of. But those who own me, come what may, I will also own them. And I will reward them greatly. That's what it says in Hebrews. Those who believe must, you must believe that God is and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we look to that reward and to Christ who gives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Moses, thankful for the picture that he is of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Lord, that you have looked upon the burdens, looked upon the miserable condition of your people. And truly, Lord, as we are in ourselves, we are miserable, utterly in slavery to Satan and to sin. And Lord, facing the worst of all, facing an eternity in hell, 
as sinners against the living God. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that you looked upon our miserable condition and you sent us a Redeemer. And grateful, Lord, for the wonderful redemption that he has accomplished for us. Now we pray, Lord, that we would trust in Christ. We would be willing to turn our back in the world, to the world and identify with your people, that we'd actually take a stand, indeed, for you and, and for your church, that you'd uphold us even as we are so ever fearful of rejection, but Lord, knowing that you have granted a great and wonderful reward in eternity for all of your people. And we pray that we would look to that and look to him, who is indeed our great reward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.